Welcome to Audiobook Test Drive. In today's episode, we are featuring an excerpt from Rest in Agony, written by Paul F. Fairman. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Trapped in the meshes of the Prince of Darkness. Here is a keystone work in the development of the modern horror novel first published in the early 1960s. When Ambrose Sampson dies, everyone in the family considered him the next best thing to a saint, including his college grad nephew, Hal. So Hal is outraged when a stranger knocks at the door and tries to strong-arm his way into the house, demanding a work supposedly written by his uncle titled The Book of Ambrose, and hinting at his uncle's involvement in something dark and sinister. But Hal's outrage turns to horror when he answers the phone and hears a ghostly but familiar voice say, Hello, Hal. This is your Uncle Ambrose. Hal's horror deepens when he learns his beloved uncle was a practitioner of Satanism and had pledged Hal's sister Lisa to the mighty Prince of Darkness. However, Ambrose has repented and begs Hal to help him oppose the forces of darkness he unleashed. Only then can he rest in peace and not in agony. Hal agrees not knowing that he will face temptations and dangers rarely experienced by mortal men, for in his future lie the perils of the house by the devil's bend, the place of pain, and the goddess of dark waters, along with the unholy temptations of Caress Dillon and Amara Cartwright. And if he survives those, Hal will still have to face the combined forces of a satanic cult and the awesome power of the Prince of Darkness himself. And now for your listening pleasure, an excerpt from Rest in Agony. Chapter 1 My uncle died in agony. It was a warm June evening, one not made for death, but for being born and living. The trees were green, and there was the scent of flowers and new-cut grass. But all the freshness and newness did not help my uncle, who lay there dying in his bed that warm June night. I sat in the yard swing in the darkness, that I remember so clearly, with my fist doubled and my body tensed against the low moaning and the aura of pain emanating from the big, white house. There were questions ever present in my mind. Why? Why this suffering? Why this sentence of unending agony passed upon a man who had been gentle, kind, and good all his life? What price decency and the upright life, with this the reward? What good is anything? A shadow loomed and Lisa was standing by the swing. She sat down. Her shoulder touched mine 
and she shivered as though the air were filled with the desolation of winter rather than the promise of spring. Hal, she said with a quaver in her voice. Yes? She really had nothing to say. She only wanted the comfort of being close to someone and speaking a name. It's pretty bad, I said. They were words without meaning, said to fill a void. It's awful. Above us, a square yellow eye gleamed from the bedroom. Who's in there now? I asked, still determined to cut out the stillness. Dad, mother, Doc Simpson? Is he any better? Worse. The drugs are wearing off. I can't understand it. I just can't understand. How a man... A scream chilled the air. The yellow eye seemed to quiver and blink. Lisa's hand suddenly came into mine. I heard a kitten whimper close to my shoulder. Otherwise, it had to be ignored. The scream. It was too horrible to be given the dignity of acknowledgement. Could a man go down so fast? Lisa was crying. I put my arm around her shoulder and drew her close to me. She was 18, but now only a kid, with no years at all behind her. A kid, frightened, bewildered, scared. I was 21. It was my job to give her courage. I wondered about it. How do you give somebody courage when you haven't gotten any yourself? A labored moan from above floated along the air with the fragrance of flowers. Take it easy, kid. Take it easy, I murmured. And at that moment, I learned something I've never forgotten. That the most important thing when you're faced with something terrible is to not let it get you. Somehow I knew Lisa and I had to protect ourselves from that terrible scream. She sensed it too, I guess. Because she said, according to people who ought to know, a human being isn't ever inflicted with more pain than he can bear. That's quite true. Pain, you see, is a signal that something is wrong. So it really serves a good purpose. But after it signals and knows you've got the message, it lets up. Oh God, I thought, don't let him scream again. Lisa made a visible effort to steady herself. I was proud of her. Of course, I'd always been proud of Lisa. At least I'd always told myself it was pride. She just, well, she had so much of everything. There wasn't a guy in school who wouldn't have given up his daybook to go steady with Lisa. Her hair jet black had silver stars in it now from the light of the new moon over the trees. She was the envy of every girl in school, because the rich, natural gold of her complexion always made you think of the slick magazine ads with girls on beaches in bathing suits. Okay, so she was slim, warm, and beautiful. But there was more. Something that seemed to center in her brown eyes and radiate out to grab you. Something that made you not really care much whether she was beautiful or not. If that makes any sense. Maybe it only made sense to me. But I don't think so. 
I think everybody around her got the same impression. Sometimes outward signs are deceptive, Lisa said. For instance, a person can be in a coma and still appear to suffer a great deal. That's right, I said. They've made scientific studies of pain, and they find that quite often outward indications are deceptive. I'd said that before. I thought how silly it must sound. Lisa's nails were cutting into my arm. That pain felt good. Babies can scream to high heaven, Lisa said, her voice edging close to hysteria. And very often, they're only mad because they didn't get their bottle. Please, God, please don't let him. A new shadow loomed. I could see a white sweatshirt gleaming and tennis shoes kicking at the sod. It was Mark Davis. Wanting to be there. Wondering if he belonged. He did belong, too. And I was glad he'd come over. But I hated myself for having to make the declaration consciously, for seeing him, at least momentarily, as the big, clumsy, homely character he was. Of course, I could see Mark pretty objectively. He had shoulders like a coal heaver, and he would hit 200 pounds by the time he was 21, which wasn't very far away. He had a face to match, big, flat, and slow to react. That may sound like a criticism, but I wasn't thinking in those terms. There wasn't an all-around better guy on two legs than Mark Davis. Still, the old resentment was there, and I felt guiltier than ever. Letting it hit me at a time like this? But that was probably why it did hit me. Because I'd never in my life wanted to comfort Lisa as I did at that moment. There had never been a time when I needed to take her in my arms. Maybe also the guilt came because Mark was the kind of guy who never pushed in, even on friends. They say that like runs to like, and maybe that's why we were kind of a threesome. An instinctive threesome, you might say. I guess Lisa and I were a little like that ourselves. Not recluses or tongue-tied creeps, mind you. None of us had any social problems. But given our heads, we sort of swung together automatically. Mark's best friend couldn't have called him brilliant. But that's not a dig, because, after all, how many of us are? As a matter of fact, he'd been called dumb on occasion. Mainly when, as a local football hero he seemed to be too thick-headed to realize that every chick in school was flipping over him. He'd amble off the field, grinning sheepishly, change his clothes, and push through the hangers-on to where Lisa and I would be waiting. Then we'd go home together. He was a friend who never made a big thing of it. You could depend on him every time. And I guess that's why I felt so guilty for resenting him. Not that I wasn't glad he'd come over. After all, a boyfriend could comfort a girl better than a brother in certain situations, and this, undoubtedly, was one of them. So I felt guiltier than ever letting that feeling hit me while we were sitting there that night. The same way I always felt when Mother would say, Hal, why don't you find a nice girl for yourself 
so that you and Mark and Lisa can go around as a foursome. Wouldn't that be a lot pleasanter? I never let my mother see my true reaction to that question. How dirty it made me feel, as though I were in love with my own sister or something like that. Not that I couldn't get girls if I wanted them, and sometimes I did, but it always petered out, always seemed too much trouble. But thinking thoughts like that, with Uncle Ambie dying upstairs behind that yellow window, was even worse. I thrust the stupid thoughts out of my mind, pulled my arm away, and Mark sat down beside Lisa in the swing and took her hand. Is he any better? He wanted to know. A little, maybe. I won't stay. I just wanted to ask, he said apologetically. Stick around, I said. Lisa asked him without words, with the pressure of her hands. So we sat there, the three of us, eager only for life, but getting acquainted with death on a sweet spring night. And death came, drifting in the window maybe, or tired of watching the agony, reaching out a hand to stop it. The light on the second floor went out. The porch door sounded, and there was Dad's gentle voice. It's all over. Uncle Amby has passed on. Say a prayer for him. We had no words to fill the gap. Not that he'll need it, Dad added, his resentment at the suffering mirrored in the defiance of his tone. Not that he'll need it, but say a prayer anyhow. Mark was taking care of Lisa. Her sobs were muffled in his sweatshirt. I said a prayer. But it was really a curse, a sacrilege, a whisper of defiance. Damn nice of you to let him out of it. I stared up at the dark window. It looked empty, exhausted, and washed clean by the agony and death. Uncle Amby was dead. His picture was in the morning paper, the one taken three years earlier when he had given the gymnasium to the high school. I looked at it and realized with a shock that I'd forgotten what a handsome man he'd been. Even in the short, swift time of his decline, I'd forgotten. And it was strange how seeing that picture helped me, helped me by making me remember. I think it was mostly Uncle Ambrosia's eyes that made people remember him. He was a shade over six foot, and I'd once heard it said that if he wanted to be an actor, he could have made the grade without any trouble at all. Oh, sure, he was handsome all right. Slim-waisted, broad shoulders, with black wavy hair and a profile that I always thought of when I saw those old TV movies featuring John Barrymore except that Uncle Amby's was a little more rugged, not-so-fragile-looking. But as I said, it was his eyes that got you. They kept changing from blue to gray and back again, according to how the light struck them, and they seemed to burn right into you. They were the kind of clear, quiet eyes it would have been hard to lie to, the kind that seemed to be able to read guilty secrets. I'd always sensed a quiet power about Uncle Amby. There was another thing, 
a feeling I always got that he knew more than he ever put into words. It was a vague thing, of course, but it gives some idea of what kind of a man he was before he went into a swift decline and death. There were a lot of fine and respectful words in the write-up. Words like friends without number, humanitarian, a day of grief for our town. Lisa and I were in the living room after breakfast reading the paper when Dad looked in and said, I'd like you two to come into the study. He went back down the hall without waiting for us. Uncle Amby's body had been taken down to West Funeral Home and all the evidence of his sickness and death had vanished. All the physical evidence. All except the big emptiness in our hearts at knowing he was gone forever. We went into the study and Lisa and I sat down on the lounge beside Mother. Her eyes were red from weeping and I noticed something consciously that I guess I'd been aware of subconsciously all my life. With some people, the ravages of emotion show. I mean, when most people cry, their eyes and their noses get red and they look a mess. But Mother wasn't that way. The marks of grief added to her beauty rather than detracted from it. There wasn't a wrinkle in her face and she hadn't aged a day since the time of my first memory of her. She was still slim and lovely and hadn't thickened the way a lot of women do after middle age. Her hair was silver white, but many a younger woman would have given plenty for hair of that shade and texture. Soft and silvery. It went with her blue eyes and the way her mouth automatically turned up at the corners when she looked at you. She smiled at us now, again in control of her emotions, her smile saying as usual, Never mind me. What can I do to help you through your sorrow? Dad was seated at his desk, but when we came in he got up and began pacing the floor. He continued to pace up and down as he talked. There are some things you should know about your Uncle Ambrose, he said. Things that... Mother held out a hand. Carl, are you sure you should tell them? Do you think it necessary? Father put on that stubborn look we knew so well. Please, Helen, they aren't children anymore. They must know the truth. No man, Dad went on, ever had a finer brother-in-law than Ambrose Whiting. There was much that you two knew about him, for which you respected and loved him. But there was even more that you didn't know. He stopped pacing and took a sheet of notepaper from the desk. I have not been nearly as successful as you have been led to believe. Again, Mother raised her hand. Carl, please. Ambrose wouldn't have wanted you to tell them. Father hesitated. He seemed perplexed about something. He frowned and paced back and forth. Without realizing it, I began to compare him with Uncle Amby. They'd been about the same age, but Father looked a lot older. He'd lost most of his hair and his shoulders drooped and he shuffled a little when he walked. He wasn't as neat about his appearance as Uncle Amby had been either. His trousers always bagged at the knees and his shave was never clean in the morning, 
because he had deep creases coming down below his cheeks on both sides. All in all, Father had the look of a man always carrying worries and troubles on his shoulders. I guess it sounds pretty bad, my sitting there comparing my own father unfavorably to my uncle, but I didn't mean it that way. In fact, while Lisa and I were there waiting, I got a little hostile to Uncle Ambrose. He'd had no right to look so young. It was only in the comparison that Father seemed at a disadvantage. I wanted to tell him right there and then that it was all right, and I know Lisa was thinking the same thing. Then Father frowned at Mother, as though blaming her for confusing him and putting doubt in his mind. A doubt about what, I wondered. I'd never seen him look at Mother that way before. Lisa noticed it too. I guess there was a kind of rapport between us, because I knew exactly what Lisa was thinking. This must be awfully important. I half nodded to her unconsciously, and then moved a little farther away from her there in the lounge, so our thighs didn't touch. I don't know whether she knew why I did that or not. Maybe our rapport didn't go that far. Anyhow, Father made up his mind. He stopped pacing and said, They've got to know, Helen. It's time. First, I want to tell them in plain words what Ambrose Whiting really did for us. He went back to his narrative tone. First, he bought this house. I could never have afforded it on an accountant's salary. He set up funds to send you two to college. Many times I tried to refuse his money and his generosity, but he always used a potent, unanswerable argument. What right did I have to refuse benefits for my children? I couldn't smash that argument. So, father stopped and looked at the carpet and shrugged. So, you really owe your uncle much more than you owe me. Lisa and I were on our feet at the same time. We reacted differently, but we both had the same idea in mind. I got a little mad, and Lisa seemed more hurt than anything else. I said, For cripe's sake, Dad, will you cut it out? So we had a rich uncle, and he was a great guy. But what's that got to do with you and us? Lisa said, You're not being fair. You're the best father two kids ever had, and it's not fair to us trying to run yourself down. If we'd never had Uncle Amby, we'd still have been the luckiest kids on earth. Lisa ran across the room and dropped to her knees and put her head in Mom's lap. Make him stop, Mother. I, I don't like it. On the face of it, this appeared to be a childish thing to do. But that wasn't how it came off. It was exactly the way Lisa felt. What right did Dad have to distort things that way? What right did he have to try to push up Uncle Amby up where he didn't belong? They're right, dear, Mother said as she stroked Lisa's shining hair. Dad choked up and paced another two turns. He couldn't find any words. Then he said, Your mother and I are going to the funeral parlor now. I saw a look of relief on Mother's face. There are arrangements to be made, Dad finished lamely. 
I knew there was something here that didn't meet the eye. What Dad had said hadn't been the big revelation we'd been called in to listen to. Actually, we hadn't known specifically the things Dad told us, but we were aware of Uncle Amby's generosity. We knew the kind of man he'd been. So what had been said was no great surprise. We already knew how lucky we'd been to have Uncle Amby's love. But I was dead certain Dad had skidded into that line of self-deprecation because Mother had blocked him off. He wanted to tell us something far more important and bowed to her wishes at the last moment. Lisa and I glanced at each other with complete understanding on that point. Then Lisa kissed Mother on top of her head. I'll go with you, she offered, and that was the end of that at least for the time being. I didn't offer to go with them. Somehow, I didn't want to see him as he now would be. I wanted to remember him as he'd been before, striding up the walk every Wednesday afternoon, returning from his weekly business trip. I wanted to think of him as waving to us from the cab that took him away every Saturday evening. I watched Father roll the car out of the driveway and into the street. Then I went into the backyard and flopped down under a tree. I pondered the way Father had changed his mind about telling us what he'd called us into the study to hear. What sort of a thing could it be, I asked myself, that Dad wanted us to know and Mother didn't? Not much in the way of a clue there. I grinned a little to myself at how Father had looked, pacing the floor there in the study while he was losing his nerve and backing down. He was a great guy, even over and above being the kind of father whose every thought was for his family. A great guy. But what did he think Lisa and I were? School kids? Wasn't he aware that we were old enough to see through his act and know he'd held out on us? I didn't know it at the time, but there was my clue right in front of my nose. Father and mother were painfully aware of the exact reverse, that Lisa and I had grown up. My mind wandered back to thoughts of Uncle Amby, the wonderful warm feeling he always brought to a family that was close and warm to begin with. And it hit me hard, lying there under that tree, how much we had lost and that we would have to store away in memory and keep as long as we lived. The next is a little hard to tell, exactly what happened. I mean, I, I guess I'm not really sure. All I know is some sort of change came over me. Something subtle, intangible, kind of, as I lay there under that tree. That might not have been it at all, Maybe I just feel that way looking back at it. Maybe there wasn't a change at all. I remember that my mind drifted far away and that the sound of the telephone ringing brought it back. I got to my feet. I had the impression that the phone had been ringing for some time, although I hadn't been aware of it. I ran into the house, and this I do know. I stood there with my hand an inch away from the phone and let it ring three more times. 
Then I picked up the receiver and said hello. Hello? The voice was faint, hardly above a whisper. Who is this? I asked. Don't you know? The voice said, sounding a trifle hurt. I can't hear you very well. This is your Uncle Amby, Al. Your Uncle Amby. We hope you enjoyed listening to this excerpt from Rest in Agony. If you would like to hear the entire audiobook, it can be purchased at Amazon.com, Audible.com, and iTunes.com.